Peace, everybody. Um, just want to welcome everybody. Moors in America is for all Moorish Americans. And first and foremost, I want to give honors, much praise to the Most High, Father God Allah, honors to Noble Drew Ali, our divine prophet, for bringing us our divine creed and nationality so that we may love instead of hate. And uh, honors to the forerunner, Marcus Mosiah Garvey, for preparing the way for our prophet. And honors to all the faithful Moors out there all over the world. That's what we're doing it for. That's what Moors in America is all about. Hello, Peter. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, thank you. Okay, I'm great. Um, yeah, it's good Good to have you on. Um, uh, we can get started whenever you're ready. I'm ready. All right. Okay, thanks everybody for tuning in. Um, today with us we have a guest, uh, Peter Moon, who's the author of various books. Um, I actually have uh, the Montauk Book of the Dead. I've read that and um, I haven't read Montauk Revisited yet, but I have that as well as Pyramids of Montauk. Um, very interesting. Um, his books cover um, everything from the metaphysical, the occult, all types of historical information. He's got a lot of information about Scientology as well. Um, I wanted to speak to you in particular about Pyramids of Montauk and um, if we could, if I could ask you just um, right off, um, where were you uh, phys uh, physically and mentally um, when you wrote Pyramids of Montauk? Well, I lived uh, on Long Island, okay, uh, you know, at the time I wrote that, I was residing in Westbury, Long Island, which is about uh, a half an hour to 45 minutes outside of New York City on Long Island. And, and you know, if you go another couple hours out, or you, you, get, you reach Montauk, which is the extreme end of Long Island. Okay. It's about three hours from New York City to Montauk if, if you drive out there with all the traffic. It's 100, about 120 miles. Okay. And I'd say, like, um, you, just from reading this, I'd say you're pretty advanced as far as uh, metaphysics and the occult. Like, when, where were you at, like, mentally when, when you um, created this? Uh, would, you, would you call this a biography? The Pyramids of Montauk you're, you're, you're mentioning. Now, okay, the, um, the Pyramids of Montauk is what you mentioned. Yes. I don't okay, know if, well, if, you're, I'm if that's sorry the book you're the referring confusion. to or you mean the Montauk Book of the Dead. Yeah, I'm sorry for the confusion. When you wrote the Montauk Book of the Book of the Dead. Where were you at mentally? Okay, okay. Well, that's that's a completely different question. Yeah, I'm, I'm still on Long yeah. Island. I've resided on Long Island since 1983, and originally from California, by way of Florida. But um, the um, the Montauk Book of the Dead. I must explain. Okay, the, the Mont Pyramids of Montauk is the third book in the Montauk series. Uh, Montauk Revisited being the second one. Montauk Project being the first. The Montauk Book of the Dead is published in 2005. 2005, and the whole story behind that book is tied to the Pyramids of Montauk. And it's, it's a rather involved story because I discovered that there, there were pyramids at Montauk. I have a photograph of them. Um, I discovered a photograph, and it's a, the royal tribe of the Montauk pharaoh, were the, were the pharaohs. They're called the pharaoh family which has been translated into Fowler. So you'll find a lot of Fowlers because the Dutch would pronounce it Fowl, Fowl, Fowler. And it okay. trans, transmutated into Pharaoh, transliterated into Fowler. 
so you, you meet a lot of people that are fowlers that are should be or could be pharaohs, and there's not there's not a great deal of uh, dist- um, difference between the two names. However, uh, the Montauk Book of the Dead was written. Uh, it is primarily, although not exclusively, about my experiences with L. Ron Hubbard and and in Scientology. And the reason I wrote it was because it it was supposed to. Oh man, I was writing a book about synchronicities with the Mount of Olives, and they were a result of my research into the pyramids of Montauk. I was handed a playbill uh, from the Ziegfeld Follies of two thousand oh nineteen ten, and it had the, it was from the New Montauk Theater, which was on Livingston Street in Brooklyn. It said Montauk Theater. Somebody saw this in an antique shop. It was a playbill. They gave it to me. After a year, they, I found out that there was buried within it, in the, between the cardboard and the playbill, were two pictures of Jesus on Mount Olive. And I said, what the hell is this? You know, and I started looking up olives and the Mount of Olives. And then it turned out that Olive Farrow, who was the matriarch of the Montauk Indians, the queen of the Montauk Indians, you could say, Olive Farrow, her name was. Wow. I'd sent her the book Pyramids of Montauk, and I asked, I called her up to see if she got it, and her, her uh, sister answered the phone and said she just received the book, but she just went to the, the hospital with a bleeding gallbladder. She would never recover. So her death was simultaneously with, with me sending her this book, and then I, I went to my notes where I was researching the olive and realized her name was Olive and read that that the olive would be used to heal the gallbladder in the future. And it was also used in ancient Atlantis. And the research I was, because I was studying the olive, so it tied right to my research into the Montauk Indians, who, by the way, are tied into the Moors as well, because the Montauk Indians were declared extinct in 1910 by a court order of New York State Supreme Court. And the, the judge, Abel Blackmar, said that they're not Indians, uh, they're too black. They're too black to be Indians. These aren't Indians, uh, which, of course, we know. Those who have studied the Moorish studies know that this is a fallacy. Yeah. It was, uh, um, and and so this was. But because I had all these synchronicities with the olive, I had to write the Montauk Book of the Dead because I was having dreams, and the dreams kept leading me to a place in California where my parents were buried and my parents were actually killed by a drunk driver on the Los uh, Adobe Los Olivos or Los Olivos Adobe. That means the Adobe of the olives. They were the Olivos family. They had the biggest ranchero in California in the area of what is now Oxnard, just adjacent to Ventura in a, uh, and they, they were killed on that land by a drunk driver, and they were buried on that land, or what was the rancho. So I said, this is com- commanding me to, to take attention, but I didn't get it until more dreams led me to Olive Drive, where I began Scientology in uh, Davis, California. It was all on Olive Drive, which was the oldest uh, road in Davis, California. It's still there. It still looks like the oldest road. It was next to the railroad tracks. And the Scientologists uh, had, Martin Samuels, his name was, had, had rented a, uh, an old Datsun dealership, 
don't, don't look like the Datsun dealer, which is Nissan now. It doesn't look like the dealerships of today, and converted it into a, uh, you know, course room and, and offices, and and that's where I got involved in Scientology, and had uh, uh, out of the body experiences there. So that was, I felt that I must tell the story of Scientology in my personal life because it uh, predicated my ability to do all my further research in my later life. And that's why the Montauk Book of the Dead was written. It was written long after the fact of having accomplished whatever I accomplished in Scientology, many years after the fact. So it's written with a lot of hindsight. Okay, so, so it would be foolish to ask you if you thought everything was just based off of coincidences with all these synchronicities in there. And um, Olive Farrell, I don't think you mentioned her in the Book of the Dead, but that so that's the, the the member, the key member of the Morse, uh, the excuse me, the Montauk tribe that kind of um, influenced you or inspired you to write the Book of the Dead. Exactly. In actual, these are two books. It was originally supposed to be the Montauk Book of the Living. Oh, I, I, I cha- that was going to be the Montauk Book of the Dead because it involved my the synchronicities uh, with with the, the the with you know death. But then then. These are these are like the Montauk book. So I had to so I had to do two books. This is really all one book: the Montauk Book of the Dead and the Montauk Book of the Living. But they're each over 400 pages, so I had to divide them up, and it took me, you know, a year to do each book. So they really go together as a package. As a matter of fact, I have them uh, on the, the the website skybooksusa.com. You can go there and you can get the books for half price. You can buy buy them both at once. They're each twenty nine ninety five a piece, but you can buy them at half price right now, uh, two for the price of one. Montauk Book of the Dead and Montauk Book of the Living, and it's a nine hundred pages worth of uh, esoteric adventure. So, uh, I hope I've answered your question. Oh yes, definitely. So, okay, moving forward. Um, why would you say that writing um, this book about or speaking about Montauk is like opening up a Pandora's box? Well, the Montauk Project is about mind control using electronics and uh, electromagnetic frequencies for, for controlling the mind. It's what it's all about. Ultimately, it, it is involved with manipulating matter, energy, space, and time itself, which is, of course, was one of the goals of Scientology, was to control matter, energy, space, and time. And here you have... Um, a group that was trying to accomplish this, and uh, you find out that the, the government and the secret factions thereof are not only trying to do the same thing, but doing a better job at it than Scientology was. Um, so that that's kind of where, it, it, and it is a Pandora's box of, you know, po- politics, conspiracy, and you know, humans trying to manipulate other humans and and this is why it's a pandora's box all right do you think there's any connection between um the air force base being located actually at montauk point i know you you spoke on that being used to um, jam psychic energy do you think there's any any um connection to that and the the pyramids or the energy you know that was already in that region you know before that was established well, Montauk has uh, 
you know, it depends how you interpret it, but it's, it's sort of built on a huge pyramid uh, geographically. It's like a huge mountain, and it, that's, that's geographically. Montauk is at the end of Long Island, but it's really an island unto itself. There's an isthmus called the Napier Strip, which is between the town of Amagansett and Montauk. Now, that's been filled in for years. So if you just drive along it, it's like a, an extension of Long Island, but it, it really is a, an isthmus. Uh, so, and it's not part of geographical Long Island. So Montauk is um, it, it, its whole thing. And, and there is a, a place called Montauk Mountain you can find on some maps, which is probably about six or seven miles west of the base. And that's got a big, you know, sort of pyramid. It's a pyramid structure um, underneath the ground. Uh, Preston Nichols, who passed away in October, he said that there was a big pyramid under the town itself. That was according to his research. So um, in, in any case, it, it is a, uh, was a hot spot geomagnetically and had been watched by secret societies for uh, millennia. It, uh, and we can only put this in myth and legend that it was uh, allegedly a part of ancient Atlantis. Uh, that, that's really in the, the mythological realm. But, um, and was told to me that's why the, the pharaohs uh, who came from Egypt, you know, that, like there were only three places that we had the term pharaoh, Montauk, Egypt, and Atlantis the common denominator between Egypt and Montauk being Atlantis, a more ancient culture. Mm -hmm. And Atlantis is really um, a catchword for an ancient civilization. It's not a particular island. Um, and, and this is, uh, there is a researcher, Egerton Sykes, who's done more research into Atlantis than anyone. And he, he, he picked antique, uh, antique sources. He, he, he didn't make the stuff up. He copied it from ancient historical writings. And his stuff is on the web now, Egerton Sykes, E-G-E-R-T-O-N-S-Y-K-E-S. Okay, I'll definitely look him up later on. There was a link that I um, meant to send you, but um, I wanted to know, have you ever heard of the Black Sun, of the Pyramid of the Black Sun or the Black Pyramid? It was found in, in um, Ecuador. There's a, a researcher named Klaus Donna. He's um, from Austria. I think he used to be a curator at a museum. He does like a lot of research on that. And um, basically, it's a it's a black stone pyramid. It was uh, probably like 13 inches high. It um, has 13 steps on it, and then has like the eye of Horus at the top, where it looks just like the one on the dollar. And then it's um, it's uh, it's got an ancient script on the bottom of it. It's actually been found in various places all over the world, like Italy, Illinois, um, just in various places. So Wait, you said 13 inches. Did you mean 13 inches or 13 Oh, I mean, um, like, how big it is. It's like you around that big. Inches. But then it also has 13 steps. It actually looks like No, no, like excuse me. You said, it's, so it's 13 inches. It's about a foot high. Yeah, about a, about a foot high. And several of these have been found around the world, you said? Well, um, the script on the bottom of it, the, the writing, the writing has been found all over the world, and um, they actually got, um, they were actually able to translate it. There's a guy, another guy in Europe who speaks, like, various languages, him and another person who's, like, from a Berber tribe um, from North Africa were able to translate it, 
and um, I forgot exactly the message that was on it, but just um, just even in that alone, because that Berber tribe, like their part of their mythology, traces them to an ancient culture, you know, connecting them to Atlantis, and so this, you know, pyramid pyramid that looks exactly like the great seal on the dollar was found over here in ecuador have you, have, have no, you I, i've of not that? heard of I, i've not heard of that uh black pyramid being discovered in ecuador uh no i haven't heard of it and certainly it's interesting yeah i'll send you the link to that later on but um i wanted to ask you too about um alistair crowley i know was um someone who had a lot of influence on on um uh l ron hubbard and um it's it's is kind of uh, unique if you look into it. Him and Rudolf Hess, and allegedly, you know, can't really say that Noble Drawley, Prophet Noble Drawley, was in Egypt because I don't have any, you know, physical documentation of that. But allegedly, he was in Egypt around the same time as these two other men, and they all, you know, later on wound up, you know, bringing this information that they learned to their colleagues. So what did, have you? Have you ever looked into that at all? What do you, what do you make of that? Well, I, I wrote a book about that. I, I was the one that, that traced the fact that they were, because uh, well, they both had, I guess what you'd call, geographical uh, position and opportunity to have been um, in Cairo at the same time. Because if you trace the, the history of, of what's available on Drew Ali, he was in Egypt during this period of, uh, I think it was 1903. Yeah. Uh, and Aleister Crowley was having his honeymoon in 1903. And see, Crowley we know was there uh, historically yeah. in 1903 during August 12th and later came back the following year uh, in 1904 to do the book of the law that was in April of the following year, but that was Crowley. Now, uh, Drew Ali was there sometime around that period. We don't really know. It's not delineated. He was there for a good while. Um, Rudolf Hess was brought up in the city of Alexandria. His father was a wealthy merchant. So um, I don't know that Hess was in Cairo on that day, but in the book Spend on Spend on Mystery, which was written to get at some of the secrets that you know you can take things so far with historical fact, and then you start um, extrapolating on what might have happened, could have happened. So that's what that book is. It's an effort to discover and find out more of of what happened because you're tapping the collective conscious. So anyway, Rudolf Hess could have been there. And I just in the book I have him taking a, a holiday with his father to see the pyramid, and they all end up staying at the same hotel, uh, you know, because it would. Uh, and and of course at that point I think Noble Drew Ali has just been initiated, if I recall. And there's a lot of other characters there that are uh, of esoterica, but that is a fictional fictional assertion to make it interesting, but to tie all the energies together. Okay. All right. And what, what book is that that you actually um, – Spandau Mystery. Spandau Mystery. S-P-A-N-D-A-U. Spandau Mystery. Spandau was the name of the prison where Rudolf Hess 
and seven other Nazis were imprisoned, or six other Nazis were imprisoned after the Nuremberg trials, and all of them were released except for Hess. Hess, was, they wouldn't release Hess. I go into why they wouldn't release him, because he was the account signatory, and he was also the secretary of the Nazi party, the financier of the Nazi party. He raised money for it through his wealthy connections with a, in Bavaria, and he, he was a signatory on the accounts and knew where accounts were. So he was a great danger to let out because he had, he had financial signatory power. And this, of course, is not talked about in history. And he was also a technologist, uh, perhaps an amateur technologist, but he was very knowledgeable about the Vril flying craft. He used to give lectures on them. So that was an issue that was brought up on the on the um, in in the book. Um, he was also connected to Tibet, um, and of course, that's what Spandau is. So he was imprisoned there, um, was uh, apparently killed. Um, you know, for he, he was he was very old, but he was. Uh, there's books written about how he was killed purposely. Okay. All right. Um, I also wanted to ask if you could explain, like, from your perspective, the connection of Ong's hat to um, Montauk Point, or at least how it um, came to your to your attention. Well, Ong's hat is a very obscure location in South Jersey. It's a, about a, a two-hour drive from New York City and maybe a 45-minute drive from Princeton. And Ong's Hat was a location where there was the Princeton scientists during the time of the 40s, during the Philadelphia experiment days, they had the Ong's Hat Rod and Gun Club, and they used to pool together um, all of their knowledge and their, their high-level physics, and they would, they would relax at this location. Now, this location was also tied to a Moorish ashram. Now, the Moorish ashram is, is even more obscure than the location of Ong's Hat. And let's say Ong's Hat was a community. The way I discovered it was I went to a lecture in New York City of a Peter Lamborn Wilson because I, he had written, his name was on something that discussed Ong's Hat. It was a, a, a part of a pamphlet. And the name Peter Lamborn Wilson. And he also goes by um, Hakeem Bay, right? He does go by Hakeem Bay, yes. Okay. And he had written a book called Sacred Drift, which is where I discovered Noble Drew Ali in that book. But Peter Lamborn Wilson, I was interested in him because his name was Wilson. And Wilson is a name that, in my book Montauk Revisited, was a continuous synchronicity generator. And I'm not the only one to have discovered that. Uh, th there is another man who has written a book called Empire of the Wheel. And uh, unfortunately, I can't remember his name right now, but he's, I've read all of his books. He also discovered the name Wilson to be connected with murders along ley lines. The name Wilson kept coming up. And Wilsons were technologists uh, going back to the 
what were called the Sonora Flying Ships of the 1840s. They, um, it was apparently a German technology, tech, technology faction in, um, this is in and around the gold country of California. And I only recently discovered that the, the family name of the Indians there are Wilsons, the, the royal tribe of the Miwok Indians. Now, the Wilsons married into them. And so the name Wilson keeps coming up. So I, I was early on in my Wilson research, I wanted to go see Peter Lamborn Wilson. I wanted to hear his lecture. And I asked him about Ong's hat. And he was very impressed that I, that I knew something more about it than just was typical. But he didn't say too much. And later I would run into the sort of the instigator of all the Ong's hat information that was on the web, Joseph Metheny, um, and he had had strange encounters with it. Um, but I, I encountered it in terms of seeking out synchronicity of the name Wilson, uh, and, and also, I found I knew people um, who had been who were aware of the ashram. Uh, it, it disappeared eventually. Okay, all right, thanks. And it was tied to something. Peter Lamborn Wilson talked up something called the Moorish Orthodox Church. The Moorish Orthodox Church uh, was sort of a CIA-affiliated. Uh, attempt to co-opt the consciousness of the Moorish element. And it operated, uh, to the best of my knowledge, out of Millbrook, New York, which is where Timothy Leary had his headquarters. Leary was tied into the Moorish Orthodox Church as well. Wow. Okay. All right. Thanks. Thanks for explaining that. Okay. Um, back to the Montauk tribe. Um, to your knowledge, have they received any remedy uh, for the since the 1909 ruling? Um, we did actually on our YouTube channel a short documentary about that. And as he was speaking on that earlier, um, just to rehash that for those who don't know, you actually had uh, several members of the Montauk tribe sitting in the courtroom in the Supreme Court in New York when um, Judge Abel Blackmar declared the tribe extinct. The, um, the chief of the tribe, Pharaoh, uh, uh, David Farrell, I believe, or Wyandotte Farrell was sitting right there, you know, and they actually declared the tribe extinct, even though several um, local people from um, the, the area um, recounted calling him uh, chief or king. Or tribe. Oh, there, there were lots of them, and they tribe. just said, you know, they just did, I mean, it was a very racist, yeah. uh, you know, um, Long Island was a very racist place up th through at least the 1920s, and there were even parts of Yapank, Long Island, which is where the Nazi compound was, where you had to be German to live there until as late as the 1880s. And pretty soon they had to give it up because, the, the, you know, racism just, you know, has been continually dying out in America. But it was very strong. And, and young people of today don't really realize what racism really is or was. Um, and, of course, growing up in the 60s, you, you definitely experienced it. But it was it must have been much worse in the 20s and back then in 1910. You know, you just forget about it. So, um, yeah, they, they declared the I mean, you know, the Indians uh, extinct. And the um, 
so, so yes, that was um, a great travesty that was committed uh, against not only the Montauks but the Moors themselves, because there was a, a lack of acknowledgement of who the Moors were, which is, uh, you know, just as bad as the other one. Okay. How did you come to the conclusion that uh, the Montauk tribe were Moors? Well, it was comes back into uh, a Delaware case. It goes back, it, they tied to Delaware, because the Montauks tied to the Lenny Lenape of Delaware, and the first case of Moors coming up in the judicial literature of the United States was, in, was, a, was a Delaware Moor. So it was very obvious that the Delaware Moors were tied to the Lenny Lenape, which the Lenny Lenape were one faction of the Montauk Indians. I think there were three, three totems. One was the Lenny Lenape, which I think represented, uh, I don't know, it was the turkey and the turtle. I think it was the wolf. And uh, I, I don't remember which was which, but the, the Lenny Lenape were one of them. And of course, I, I learned this from the shaman of the Montauks uh, as far as the, the three totems. But yes, the, I found that in literature. The Delaware Moors um, were Lenny Lenape. And that's where the Lenny Lenape came from. So there was a big Delaware connection. And, um, and then it becomes rather obvious why are there – see, there's also the cousins of the Montauks or the Shinnecocks. They are known as black Indians, although they're not all black Indians. Yes. And it's kind of like when you move to Long Island and you grow up in the culture that we grew up in, you think, well, why are all these Indians black? It, it doesn't make any sense from uh, what you read in history books. And then you start putting two together. Well, now we know why they're all black. They, they make up stories about them being amalgamated with slaves. When I met the shaman's mother, the shaman of the Montauk Indians, she's sort of like a, a light, her skin's very like a light chocolate. Um, she has a son who looks dark. She has a son who's an albino. And I met her mother, and her mother looked like she was white, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I told her mother, I said, well, I didn't expect. And she says, oh, no, we're all in it. We're all colors. You know, she says, Indians are all colors. You know, so it's um, – and as the, the, the medicine man of the Montauks, uh, Artie Crippen, he says that he's got, like, his family. He said, oh, you know, all of his sister, brothers and sisters are all got different designations on their – their driver's license, you know, one's declared a Native American, one's called black, one's called Caucasian, one's probably called a- Asian. He's half Asian himself. You know, so it's like they, they got all these like, you know, it, it doesn't make any, they, you're looking at one family and they don't all fit into one stereotype. So it, it became sort of obvious that this Moorish connection and that the, the, the Montauks came from Egypt. There's a lot more I guess what you call synchronistic tie-ins uh, that point to a association of the Montauks, not only with uh, the Moors, but with uh, the Welsh people as well, the Welsh Indians. And it, it came up in the Mandan Indians who were Welsh Indians, white, uh, blue-eyed Indians that came up the Delta from Mobile Island in Alabama or Alibamu, or Alibaba, and they came up the, the Mississippi, settled in Tennessee, Kentucky, where all these place names of King Arthur and Prince Madoc 
They made their way up to Montana, became the Mandan Indians, eventually over to California where they're known as Modoc Indians, uh, which is hauntingly similar to the name Prince Maudoc, uh, which, is, which was the brother of King Arthur, according to the research of Alan Wilson. Okay. Yeah. And, so, and, and Prince Maudoc, I figured, was probably a transliteration of a character called Montauk Pharaoh, who is not a historical character in the books. It's from the, the, um, the Montauk medicine man who told me there was Montauk Pharaoh, was a pharaoh in Egypt who came over, escaped Egypt and came over to Montauk, where he was the pharaoh of the Montauks. He said that's how that got started. And he might be the same character as Prince Madoc, who supposedly came from Egypt and, um, you know, made his way up to, uh, you know, England, we know now as the United Kingdom. Okay. All right. And then when you were speaking on the way um, uh, people in the tribes get reclassified, you can see that, too, in the uh, the work of uh, Jack D. Forbes. He writes about a lot how you had people who, even during their lifetime sometimes, their you know, their birth certificate will say one race or ethnicity, and then, you know, by the time um, they're older, you know, they'll say something else on their the census. But um, back on it, and also uh, uh, one of the uh, famous rapper, um, Old, Old Dirty Bastard, he was of Shinnecock descent. Actually, a lot of the Wu-Tang Clan were. And um, his grandfather was uh, Paul Cuffey, who was like one of the last pure blood, uh, they say, um, chiefs of the tribe, the Shinnecock. I've heard of Paul Cuffey. I've heard, of, I've heard that name, yes. And I think it yeah. appears in a book. Uh, that I have on the history of the Montauks. Yeah, and then for somebody like Old Dirty Bastard, if you ever heard of him, to say stuff like that, people just took him as crazy, (laughs) you know? So he he didn't get any recognition, actually, for that at all. Sorry about that. And um, I actually have another question about that. Um, When you were speaking about the shaman of the Montauks saying that their relatives came from Egypt, um, I'm a member of the Moore Science Temple of America, and within the Holy Quran in Chapter 47 about Egypt being the capital of dominion, um, we're actually told that the the Moabites received permission from the Pharaoh to come over here to the Americas to settle or to set up colonies, so so to speak. Have you seen anything in your research that correlates with that? And especially in light of the Montauk saying that they're Ancestors came from Egypt. Well, the you know uh, where where um, Sharon Jackson, the the shaman, uh, she said she read it in a book when she was small. She could never find the book. You know, she's never been able to produce the book. Um, but it, she's not the only one to share that. Some of them don't believe it, but what they believe, many of them have been, you know, more or less programmed by what they've read in school. And um, the medicine man warned me of something called a book Indian. And a book Indian is somebody who's, who's a Native American who studied too many books written by white people. Yeah. And he thinks he knows things because he's read them in books as opposed to ancient and oral tradition. So to get back to your question of whether, you know, the pharaohs authorized the, uh, the Moabites to, to come here, you know, I think – 
there is a migration that has taken place from you know the old world to the so-called new world and it goes in sequences and series so it's it's very and then we've been taught a very sanitized history you know that everything happened from 1492 onward which is the date of the expulsion of the moors uh from spain and it's it's a very false history so when you go back into what i guess what you call some of the history that the mormons write about which is a very hard to so uh if you just hang on we'll get things back up don't go anywhere Okay, all right. Peter Peter, Peter Moon. Peter Moon. Hello? Hey, Peter. Hey, thanks for calling back in. Uh, I'm not sure what happened. You just... Uh... I, I got cut off my internet. I got cut off my phone. I don't know what the hell happened. Uh, okay. I, I've never seen anything like it before. I, I started running diagnostics. I guess... I don't know if I fixed it or it just came back on because it certainly didn't make any sense to me. But anyway, I'm back. Uh, yeah, you were going in and it just all of a sudden we couldn't hear you, man. Sorry about that. I don't think it was your fault, yeah. you know. Um, but whatever. Uh, so I, I was talking about uh, the history of uh, you were asking me about the Moabites yeah. and uh whether they had authorized the, the people coming over here to represent, uh, you know, Morocco or whatever. Uh, and as they say, there's a series of migrations that have taken place. I was saying the Mormons go into that in their history, which is hard to reconcile on some levels. Nevertheless, yeah. it's just one instance of ancient peoples coming over here, populating this area um, into antiquity. So I would say that if the pharaohs of Egypt did indeed do that, it's kind of like, when did they do it? And what was the reference frame? Because there's probably earlier forefathers of theirs and later descendants of theirs who more or less did the same thing. That That's just my opinion. So when you try and, you know, assign a certain authority to something it's lost in in antiquity and this is how things work so right now we have people who who should have a legitimate claim to this world if if we're going to divide it into territories but it sort of becomes pale because the ruling authority is the ruling authority you know and it's like it's it's uh whether it's good or bad it's it's the ruling authority so it kind of doesn't do one much good. One is lucky, like say the Aga Khan, who who is sort of like a sort of homeless in terms of his status of what what he or his you know he does have a kingdom, but it's it's not a really much of a geographical kingdom. I don't think. I think it's just a uh, kingdom of wealth. The Aga Khan, who was the descendant of the assassins. So what good, what good does a pedigree do do you if you can't exercise it? It's all about power, yeah. secular power. Yeah, it makes sense. And it's just, even the the name that um, that we were given in the Quran for the the ancient name for Africa or even for this landmass as well of a Mexum, you can't find that anywhere else. 
Well, you find it in Moorish history, and I, I, I mean, you, you said that you're a member of the Moorish Science Temple. Which, which city are you in? I'm actually in Columbus, Ohio. I'm a member of Temple 12 in Toledo, Ohio. Okay. Um, I had, um, I've been with, and this is years ago, spoke with the Moors, to the Moors in Washington, D.C. It, it was affiliated with one of the temples, and also in Chicago. And I, I spent more time with the people in Chicago than I did with in D.C. But, and, and I don't know that any of the people I met with were hardcore members of the temple, but they were definitely Moors. We didn't really get into the temple. They didn't talk about the temple because the people that were facilitating me, Sid Catlett wasn't, wasn't a member of temples. But these people were so knowledgeable and not knowledgeable in a, I guess what you'd call regimented or parochial way. They were knowledgeable on real history. They didn't talk about certain things that couldn't be authenticated. Yeah. They knew about laws. They knew about, they knew, I was so impressed with their knowledge um, and wisdom. Um, but the, uh, you know, the whole thing about, you know, I mean, there, there is a certain trace history that, that goes back to Morocco with the United States, but it, it falls apart. A lot of it, um, a lot of the more interesting stuff in trying to trace that is this, this mandate they talk about that was in the Pan-American uh, conference in Cuba with Noble Drolli. That was an actual conference that he attended. And he, he was supposedly had some land grant or something that showed that, um, that this land was ceded to uh, – or borrowed from the Moors, it was like an acknowledged lease, and that after this was when all these countries started calling in their, their loans from the United States because the land they were on was questionable, and this caused the financial panic of 1929 and beyond. Um, when I first heard that story, it sounded preposterous, but when you look deeper into it, there is a lot of uh, obscure history there. So... Um, and of course, these things can vanish. I've seen stuff vanish before. So, you know, whether it's demons or people in the right places taking it and the wrong places taking it, there's probably a lot of obscure history about the Moors, and you'd probably find a great deal of it buried in the Vatican, because the Vatican was very hateful of Moors and very hateful of cats, which go hand in hand with the Moors. Yeah. I mean, it, they used to kill cats uh, and uh, throw them off of towers, and it was uh, they associated the cats with witchery. So if I could you'd pause right there and um, ask you, if, if you could explain more on that, because um, within the book you said something that I haven't really heard anywhere else about Feliz Navidad, um, meaning birth of the cat. And uh, I mean, it made sense, you know, with Felix being a Latin. Well, cat. yes, yes, we'll see. Felix, Feliz means, you know, felicity. Or in Feliz Navidad is, is Merry Christmas, Merry Birth, Happy Birth. When in Portuguese they say Bon Natal, you know, good birth, happy birth. Uh, 
in, 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 in Spanish, it's Feliz Navidad. And Feliz is, is very tied to the word Felix and, and feline. It's all tied etymologically. So that's just one reference to the birth of the cat. But Jesus has always been associated with the cat. Um, he's called the Lion of Judea in the Bible. He was identified as Jesus ben Pandera in the Talmud. He comes from the line of Pandera, which refers to the panther. He was portrayed in occult circles for years as a panther, maybe a leopard. But, uh, and there are other references, even the word uh, Leo. Leo is, is, is tied to the cat, and uh, Leo is tied to the sun, and Apollo, which is the uncovering of the sun. And Kabbalistically, Apollo is, is related to Tipareth, or Tipareth, which is the, the sun. So he is, he's always been associated with the cat. And, of course, the, the, in, in astrology, Leo is the most exalted sign of the zodiac. It's the king of the, you know, the king of the, the zodiac. So that's why, you know, the birth of the cat, this, this refers to it. There are other deeper references to it, but that's enough to give you a, you know, a summarized definition of, of why Feliz Navidad ties to the, uh, the birth of the cat. Yeah, definitely. And I like how you tie that in, too, with the, um, the, the lion's grip as well. Well, yeah, that goes into the deeper, because King Solomon, uh, in, in the legend of masonry, Hiram Abiff was the, the builder of the temple, and they tried to kill him for his secrets. The three ruffians tried to get the secrets. This is a Masonic ritual that's acted out based upon an archetypal myth. And the three ruffians kill him, try, try to or wound him. They finally kill him. And King Solomon orders them, or orders them to be to be resurrected. Nobody can resurrect Hiram Abiff, the builder of the temple, till he finally uses what is called the lion's grip or the lion's paw. And that lion's paw represents five fingers. And this is something in esoterica, which is called the ratio of the paws to the claws in regards to the sphinx. The sphinx has four paws and five claws. And this is the, the relationship between four and five, which represents, four represents the tetrahedron, which corresponds to something in the Bible called Tetragrammaton, which means four letters, yod heh vau the, the word, the name of God, which equates to Yahweh or Jehovah. And then you have the five, which is the pentagrammaton, meaning five letters. Pentagrammaton, grammaton is letters, penta is five. And that re represents to not just yod heh vau but yod heh shin vau shin being the fifth which is the secret hidden word of Freemasonry. And that is the, the secret core to the lion's grip. Shin means spirit. It means change. And that is what act, it's the fifth element. It activates the Hiram Abiff, and this is how King Solomon himself with the lion's grip. It's all uh, intense symbology. Yes, definitely.
And um, back to the Montauk tribe, um, I remember you saying also in the book that there was a member of the, the Moore Science Temple of America that was, I guess you could say, sponsoring the, um, the Montauk's, um, like their quest to be recognized by the government. Could you speak on that? Well, you did ask me earlier about the, the, if anything had happened with the Montauks. There was a, uh, I don't know about any member of the Moorish Science Temple right now helping the Montauks. I don't recall specifically what that's about. But there was an effort by the State Assembly of New York that actually recognized the Montauks, and the Senate went on board with it. So you had the legislature of New York State acknowledging the Montauks. This is about four or five years ago. And it was all set to recognize them. Um, And Governor Cuomo vetoed it. He vetoed it, and he said, well, we have to study this. It has to be studied by the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State never studied it. So it was just a way to kill the bill. So we can blame the governor, Governor Cuomo. It actually got through the legislature. So, you know, we're dealing with political corruption at the highest levels of New York State, which is in, in the personage of the governor. Uh, you know, this just tells you that the man is, is, uh, is, is just evil, you know, re- you know, regardless of what else he's up to. And I wouldn't say he's 100% evil because he is running New York State and he's running people, but this is just like uh, – I wouldn't want to have that on my uh, conscience if I was him. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's, that's, you know, and, and there's just, uh, th- this thing is, is, a, is a big, big deal. It's so big. Um, and right now we're dealing with all of this crazy politics in America. And the craziest thing about the politics, you know, without going into taking sides, is that there's no meaningful prosecutions of either side. There's token prosecutions of small-time players. Mm-hmm. So, you see, you don't have anybody being prosecuted. You don't have any, any rule of law that applies to the elite. We supposedly have sealed indictments that are indeed quite real, but we don't know who's going to be indicted. And this is supposed to be released in January simultaneously. So you could see, uh, you know, maybe you'll see half of Congress being indicted. I doubt that will happen. So, or it might just be a bunch of drug dealers. Who the hell knows? I mean, it's like, I'm very cynical about what, what might happen. Um, but things don't change, stay the, stay the same forever. So. Definitely. So, Okay, um, this is my speculation, just from what I um, got from the, the Montauk Book of the Dead. Would you say that um, that what is happening, you know, specifically with the Montauk, you know, tribe, is tied into, you know, what are all of our fates, or what what's happening with us on a greater level? Because, like, within the book, when you're speaking about um, how the Egyptians say that only a new pharaoh can restore Mayat, you know, and um, Within that same book, you're saying that the pretty much the only people known on Earth, you know, that were in that position to claim pharaohship, would be the Montauk tribe. Well, that's it, an excellent question, and see, what it, it works like this: if you go in to study the the court case against the Montauks, as I did, 
you begin to encounter the number 666 in the dockets and the dates of the deeds and all this sort of thing, even to the point when I went up to look up the deed in the Suffolk County, uh, you know, uh, archives or whatever they call it, is, is, the, is the car opposite mine when I pulled in the parking lot was the exact year and color of my Ford Mustang. At the time, I had a Ford Mustang, and the license plate they had was 666. You know, that's just like the synchronicity of it. Yeah. And then you, you start looking at, at all these dates of the court cases, and it's 666. Now, 666 refers to carbon. Uh, this is a carbon-based universe, and the carbon atom has six protons, six neutrons, and six electrons. So what this, this means is that the, the Montauk pharaohs and the, I guess what you'd call the, the denigration of them is proportional to the amount of introversion of spirit into matter. Spirit into matter is symbolized by the upside-down pentagram, whereas the upright pentagram is spirit over matter. This is why Satanists use the, you know, the inverted paragram. Yes. Uh, pe pentagram. So basically, Montauk, as a negative structure, is a complete inversion of matter over spirit. This is why. So when you have the Montauk Indians as a race are literally, or as a tribe, are in a crucified state as a tribe. That doesn't mean you know, in terms of what their true power is. Their power has been crucified. The individuals go about their lives however they go about them. But this is like a, a racial, uh, tribal indignation that's just impressed upon them. And the only way you can rise from a, a crucifixion is to rise from the dead. So that, that's kind of what we're dealing with. So the symbology of, of Montauk is... Uh, this is what the whole, the whole project is and everything. So when we talk about lifting that up, it's like this is, the, this is the predicament of the whole physical universe. People are indoctrinated into physicality, and they can't get out of it. And they're stuck in it, and they're living in this 3D world, and they become consumers. And, you know, being a consumer is – is something you, you do to get through life. However, if you're just stuck in that band of consuming, that's all you ever are. You have to, to rise above it. You have to be above it. So this is like Montauk is a wonderful metaphor for what's wrong with this, and it, and it ties in very deeply to the things we've just discussed, um, like, you know, with resurrection, the shin. You know, it's, it's like a principle which just rivets it into the, uh, you know, more uncomfortable uh, aspects of, of living in the material universe. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, I have another question, too. In the book, um, you, you spoke on um, how many of the early presidents, I say before George Washington, um, or presidents of the, um, the Continental Congress were Moors. Uh, what led you to, to that? That conclusion. Well, that's that's history that I've read. Um, you know, John Hansen, who I, I do mention, is one of the most controversial and lied about characters. Whether he's being lied about by 
know, this faction or that faction, I can't tell. But, um, you know, there's, there's ties of Washington even being tied to the Moors, being part Moorish uh, or part, you know, his family. And, th- and this is part of this is, and I think I once met, once spoke to a man named Joe Washington. I think he was from Washington State. And, and he was white, and he was like the only white Washington I'd ever met, <laughs> yeah. because all Washingtons are are black. You, you, I mean, there's tons of them. Yeah. And, and so how in the hell, well, you know, they're not related ostensibly to George Washington. There's there's no white Washingtons. So you have, you know, the Washita Empire, and of course I, I learned about that as well, the Washita Empire. Um you know, so so that's that's a whole other obfuscation of history. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, 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 of course, and, and and the whole constitution of America is um, based upon the, the the Iroquois. Now, what what I learned from one of my Moorish friends, uh, Tecumseh Brown Eagle, he taught me that er, I R, is it is an iteration for the cat. He comes from Erie, Erie, with the Erie tribe, with the cat people, Iroquois, with the cat people. Yeah. So you even have an ancient land uh, called Ur. In the Bible, it's called U-R, Ur. You have Iraq, Iran. Um, you have Aaron, Aaron meaning Ireland. Mm-hmm. All of these things tie to the cat, which it all makes sense because the cat is the, uh, you know, is the king of, of the Zodiac. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned that, like, kind of indirectly, the, the Constitution is kind of based off of uh, isonomy, like a Mo- ancient Moorish uh, doctrine. No, I, I said Iroquois. I don't know if I mentioned, I don't remember that. But, I mean, yeah. I mean, it might well be. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, w- w- it was based off of what? Um, uh, the isonomy. This is like an ancient okay. Moorish doctrine, kind of. Okay, I remember that now. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That that's that that I would like to find out more about. Yeah, I do remember that now. All right, and um, okay. Also, uh, we did have a question from the from the um, chat from the people that are listening in. Would you mind if I ask that now? Go ahead. Okay. Um. Yeah. Somebody wanted to know if you could go in or if you could um, expound on the Moorish history in America before and after 1492. Well, you know, that that's – I don't consider myself equipped to really address that, you know, because – uh, what, whatever I do know is limited and it's not fresh on my mind. I would, I think where, where it, it stands out, it, where I would, you know, go after it is when I was talking about Prince Madoc, um, which uh, that appears in the Montauk Book of the Living. And, and the strain of, of Egypt, which comes, you know, there, there is an argument to be made that the, Egyptians settled the British Isles uh, or, or influenced the British Isles with Skoda. Scotland is named after Skoda, the daughter of the Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. And then you have Prince Madoc, you know, coming from Egypt 
if there is this Montauk Pharaoh came, and he was Prince Madoc, he came from Egypt, he went to, um, to, you know, the British Isles, and then came to Montauk. That's how he would have traveled. And, you know, whether his brother was King Arthur or not, this is the work of Alan Wilson. Uh, he's done quite a lot of research on this. He can be found on the net and in his books. And all these place names of King Arthur and Prince Madoc in and around Kentucky and Tennessee. So there have been other people that have studied the migration of, and, you know, and where do you, you know, what is a moor? Where do you call a moor? A moor is a designation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very broad designation. What first impressed me about moors, the first time I encountered them was in a movie called The Long Ships, starring Sidney Poitier and Richard Widmark. Richard Widmark being a Viking who crash lands on the Moorish coast. And he has an encounter with the Moors. Uh, and, but the, the thing that struck me as, as a young man watching this movie was that the Moorish army had white and black warriors, and there was no distinguish or reference of race. I said, what the hell is this? You know, you don't see this in a movie. You don't see black fighting. Usually you'd see blacks fighting in a, you know, Ramar of the Jungle, you know, fighting. And you wouldn't fight them, find them fighting alongside whites in an ancient, you know, paradigm. Yeah. And my father explained to me, he says, no, Moors didn't have that. That was not, they didn't have a racial issue with that. And that was my first introduction. It was not a, a skin thing although it became a skin thing. It wasn't initially, and, or at least at that period of history. So you have different parties, different factions, often identifying with the cat and the name Mo, uh, Moros in Rome was from the Greek Moresh, which was from Mao, the Egyptian word for cat, and Resh, the Egyptian word for head or king. So you had uh, the Maoresh, where the the cat, the cat heads or the cat kings, and you know, so so it's a it's a very broad, and you'll find people named after cats, but you'll also find people named after other animals as well. Mm-hmm. But it's a designation that indicates a uh, an ancient time of felicity and and positiveness, and that's what so many people identify with, and they also. And the antagonists identify with the opposite. You know, let's let's yeah. kill the Moors, let's kick them out of Spanish, Catholic Spain, let's you know, let's defeat the feminine energy, let's kill the cats. Yeah. It all goes hand in hand. Definitely. So, okay, bringing it back here to to um, North America um, concerning the Moors, has your research provided any insight into the circumstances? Um, surrounding the transition of the Prophet Noble Drew Ali? The transition, meaning his uh, meaning leaving the, this... the death, yeah. Leaving uh, the physical form. You know, it, I guess it depends on who you talk to. Um, I, there's nothing definitive. The most interesting thread on that was from Elihu Pleasant Bay, who did the book on Noble Drew Ali. And much of that information he told me, he stayed with me. He attended the uh, 
book conference with me one year. You know, we, we lived together for a few days and, and you know, shared the same table. Mm-hmm. He, he knew Noble Drew Ali's, one of his wives. And he got information, a lot of information from her. Noble Drew Ali does have a descendant. He had, he had multiple wives and he had granddaughters. Wow. Uh, I, I hoped that I would have, you know, been able to meet them or contact them, but, and I even mentioned in the book that I was looking forward to that, but I've, I've not heard anything about or from them. Um, and sometimes people can carry a lineage like that and they may have no, you know, it, it's, it's like being, uh, you know, the son of Willie Mays and having no relative baseball ability. Yeah. It's just, you know what I mean? It doesn't necessarily, the fact that you come from a genetic line doesn't necessarily mean that you are that thing that your, you know, your father, your mother or grandfather was. Sometimes you are, sometimes you're not. Yeah. Did they go underground? Because I, yeah, I never even heard. I that. just don't know. It was obscure. <laughs> wow. and, and, and it was obscure. And I kind of lost touch with him. He still, I still get emails from him or what do you call it? Uh, blanket stuff that he sends out, but I haven't, I, I didn't get any headway with that uh, as far as finding that out. Um, I want to say that her name was Pearl. So yeah, I don't know if that was. was one of, yeah, yeah, it was his wife, Pearl. Wow. Yeah, and, and, and you know, one time I was driving through Ohio, not far from where you live, with oh. the medicine man. We were driving back from Michigan, and he says, uh, it's okay if we go to Akron. I want to see, you know, Aunt Roma. And I said, sure. Now, it's an hour and a half out. Of, it's, a, it's, a, it's out of the way. It's at least, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe 45 minutes. I don't know. It's, it's, it's taken a couple hours off our journey. And then we get, we get to Roma's house. And, of course, then, you know, we're going to be fed and this and that. And it turns into a whole, you know, which I, I didn't mind at all. But I was so incredibly gifted and honored to in in the in that house and he didn't know it was was a lady called miss kitty miss kitty was a montauk indian i forget who she came from on the montauks but she was like a a matriarch and she was related to nat turner she was related now nat turner is of course the the he's part of the washita he's even according to one theory related to the dauphine of france or his ancestry was the Dauphine of France, so, which is a whole Moorish connection in and of itself. But here was a Montauk Indian matriarch who was related to Nat Turner. And you had right there in that moment in Akron, I'm seeing the bloodline from Montauk going right into the Washita Empire. Wow. And that's just, wow. I was so honored to meet her. And, you know, she could have been my aunt, you know, the way I was treated. But... Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, that's the magic of the moment saying, Hey, this is all real. But of course we live in a world where, um, you know, you know, you just have this, this power patriarchy that, you know, insists on, you know, like, like this mindset of let's feed the people in Mexico, but let's, let's let everybody starve in the tent cities here, you know, yeah. you know, this humanity is politically 
orchestrated. You know, it's like it, it's this whole inhumane uh, paradigm that we live in with power politics, which extends all the way back into history of, you know, killing other people and us first, everybody else. Yeah. Not even, not even second, but you know, this is just the way the world, and it all represents that downward spiral. I was alluding, alluding to earlier about, you know, getting fixated into uh, the material plane and all that it, uh, all the negativity that it can perpetrate. Yeah. And then ultimately, I think like, like within just with what uh, the Prophet Noble Drew Ali brought with the Holy Quran, ultimately it's to, to help you, you know, break out of that, that cycle and to prepare us for even a, um, not just um, to fix our earthly plights, but to reveal, you know, higher truth so that you can um, expand beyond that. And um, when you were speaking of Brother Elihu Pleasant Bay, I actually know him, Swift Angel. Uh, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and he's the first person to ever say anything about Moorish nationality or the, you know, Anyone, nobody ever told me that, you know, our our um, nationality and identity had been stripped from us. So he's one of the ones that helped to raise me up into that information. Just yes, and, and it's not only been stripped, you know, stripped from the Moors, it's been stripped out of the history books. And, you know, uh, they talk about fake news. Well, you know, we've had fake history. And, and I saw some some people going at it. I won't even get in these debates. Uh, because they're so stupid, they were arguing about the historicity of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, the only way, I mean, there's been so much literature created about that, just like there's been so much literature created about King Arthur. Does that mean King Arthur's real? Not in the <laughs> no. sense that he's written about. So it's like, uh, there's been a lot of stuff, you know, written about Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is so, there's so much conviction put into it uh-huh. that it becomes real for people. Yeah. You know, it's like, and it's not. So anyway, or maybe it is, and everything's real in some other universe. However, with, with this, the only way you can prove this stuff, whether it be the historicity of Jesus or these Moorish questions that, that you and others legitimately have, is this is where we get into the time travel. It's like, can we go back and can we examine history and can we really see and objectify it? And, of course, if you can actually do that, it's sort of unnecessary because when you've arrived at that state, you know, like, like do we really need to go back and see where Tesla went to school to show that he was qualified to do what he did? No. <laughs> yeah. Nobody cares. Um. So, yeah, this, this is the thing. Uh, yeah, so, so if, you can go, if, you can, if you can be fluid throughout history and you can go back and you have the power to go back, and, you know, it's not like you're going to be running back into the present time and saying, well, we found out that the Moors really own this piece of land and you don't, or, or that Jesus really did exist, so your religion's wrong. I mean, that's kind of what it, it gets reduced down to. It's like... If, if you have that ability to go back and verify, you'd probably go back and, and find out that things are nowhere near the way they appear from having read literature. Yeah. 
you know, it's kind of like if you go back and read uh, the history of a, of a famous baseball game or football game or Super Bowl or something like that, you can go back and read the history, and it sounds very poetic, but it would be a completely different experience than sitting in the stands or being in the game, you know. And, and when you, you, you're getting involved in, uh, you know, in, in, in this type of history, you, you're going to find out it's, it's oh so different. And, uh, and you might find that nobody really knew what they were doing. You know, they, n- nobody really didn't. You, you, if you went back there and found yourself in, in the year zero from, to, to 100 A.D. and were able to travel around, uh, you might find that it's, it's not like you thought it was and that anything you tried to do to change it, you might be frustrated because of the mindset of the people who were doing what they were doing were so stuck in their ways that there wasn't necessarily an opportunity for you to say, you know, if, if you do it this way, you're going to screw up the next, next millennium, and they, they might look at you like, who the hell are you? You know, so. Yeah. And the people who did kind of have that mentality in these different ages, they were so far ahead of their time, they, they wouldn't even have been accepted. <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly, and and we don't know what manipulations are going on there, but um, you know, his, history. Um, as as I as I grow older in this world, I find that so much of what I've experienced becomes <clears throat> just in my own mind becomes transmuted into something other than the way it looked ten or twenty years ago. In other words, you know, there's certain points of history that just kind of like, okay, you know. It's like, like if you look at the history of milk, mm-hmm. milk was once a certain way when you got milk out of a cow, yeah. and then it became homogenized, and then they pumped vitamins into it. So, for example, my wife comes from Romania, and she cannot stand the milk here. Yeah. She says, what the hell is this? This isn't milk. So uh, not until she goes to a farm and pays $7 for a half gallon of milk will she be, feel like she has something that's representative of real milk. Because when you're in Romania, you're drinking out of a cow, practically. <laughs> yeah. You know, so so this is like so that's milk. That's the history of milk. What happened to milk? It's the same thing with history. It becomes diluted. It becomes homogenized. It, you know, so this is the the problem with we're dealing in history. But that's also the way life works. So in other words, you know, you might think of, you know, all all the girlfriends you had, and then look back and say, well, this one was this and. and you just only certain things stand out about them and it might just stood out that, you know, maybe you shouldn't get involved with redheads cause you always have bad experience with redheads or something just cause that's your, your own thing or, or whatever, or you shouldn't be involved with, you know, girls of this religion or, or that persuasion because they just don't work for you. So that that's all that might stand out about them when actual, in actual fact, there was all this detail that you were involved with. So, you know, history gets summarized by us, and, and you can only kind of conclude things. And on, on a collective basis, it's the same thing. That makes a lot of sense. I agree. Um, I do have another question. I, I think um, that there, there's a more um, resurgence or reawakening going on right now. There's a lot of people who are... Um, labeled as African-American, 
who are starting to think outside the box and and starting to think that maybe they shouldn't go with those labels. And so a lot of people are coming into this information with Prophet Noble Drawley, and it's it. There's not really any support for this. Like there's really no um, logical reason for this to be happening. I mean, it's not like there's you know government funding behind it. I mean, the only reason they would know is because of people like um, Aliu Pleasant Bay, uh, people like you writing um, about this. Um, there's another brother named Hakeem Bay out of New York who's been teaching for years, Taj Tariq Bay, and then just like a handful of people who've been keeping the temples, more science temples of America, open, like uh, Supreme Grand Sheik D. Bailey Ill. And I just wanted to give a shout-out to him. So there's not really any reason, like, logically for this to be occurring because there's people, like, all over the, um, the nation. Well, look, look at it from this way. Look at it from this way. Um, during, after uh, communists, communism fell in 1989, mm-hmm. one of the most surprising things to me, not being from these countries, was watching how the countries of the, that made up the Soviet Union, such as Lithuania, Latvia, Belarusia, uh, and, and other countries I'm not naming, they all had a national identity. Yeah. And it was all screw you, Russia, was part of the national identity. But they had their own identity, which had been taken from them by the Soviet Union. And I said, you know, but this is like hundreds of years ago it was taken. Well, maybe not hundreds of years ago, but but the generation that was protesting was saying, hey, this is who we are. We want our identity back. And and it, 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 it was it spanned generations. That that surprised me. Now I can tell you from a friend of mine who was recently in China and in Inner Mongolia. Mm-hmm. She's Romanian, and she told me how the Chinese have been so stripped of their. They they love anything that's American, you know, like like just food that's American. She said the food was horrible. It was all like. It was so bad that, she, you know, she was trying to do holistic stuff. And, it, and, and the food was full of so much crap, and the air was crappy. And she said that the people were fascinated to learn about their own history in China. She knew more about it than they did. Wow. And she's teaching them their history, and they're fascinated. Now, this is in Inner Mongolia, a big city in Inner Mongolia. And the same thing happened. She was working at a co-op in China, which was, you know, the pits, apparently. So, in other words... It's, it's like uh, people have – it's in their DNA. So if, and, and, and see, uh, I, I can't – I can only say sort of from the outside, I have seen the culture of black America improve so much over my lifetime in terms of it not being disenfranchised like it was in the 50s and 60s when I grew up. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I was once in 1987, I went to Cancun and I, I saw, uh, you know, black, a black person at the hotel. And I was in culture shock because they said, oh, that's a black person having a vacation. I, you know, I'm yeah. thinking like, I'm, I'm like, oh, black people have vacations? Because, uh-huh. you know, first off, when I was on vacation, I never really saw them. Not that I w- really went to that many vacation spots, but I said, oh, that's great. They, they, can, they can have vacations, too. It's kind of like because the mindset was so, so cut off, mm-hmm. you know. So, so 
you know, and, and of course... Well, a lot of our people were uh, in survival mode, not, not to cut you off, so... Yeah. They, no, no. Well, they, they were in, they were in, they were in, in yeah, survival mode to, to say nothing of that. And, you know, I read the stories of Dick Gregory and how he grew up and, and how hard it was. And, but you see, and, and even the mood of, of black people where, where I live is so pleasant. It's like, there's no, New York is good for that, you know, for multi ethnicity, but it's like, they're you know like the it's just like they don't i don't feel the the racial buzz that maybe i would have felt 10 15 years ago things have improved yeah it's not perfect but it's improved and and so that gives people a freedom to look further and say well you know uh and we've had a black president so you know it's like regardless of what his drawbacks are it still says, hey, this is everybody's equal, and then it gives people an incentive to to think and to free and to look. Now, what I would say is uh, our friend Mr. Ford, uh, who, who wrote to you, he has enlightened me to um, the work of Paul Guthrie. And Paul Guthrie gives some pretty extensive uh, YouTube information on um, – Wallace Farad, or Wally Fard, uh, the, uh, the founder of the Nation of Islam. And, and this sort of turns things upside down for what people have been taught about the Nation of Islam. And he's not necessarily liked by people in all quarters of the Nation of Islam. But his, his, his work is, is, you know, he, he will challenge anybody for scholarship, Paul Guthrie. And, uh, and so that, that puts a different spin and this Mr. Ford character has put a different spin on Moorish heritage as it comes as, on the character of Wally Farad and who really Wally Farad really was. He is not the character that shows up in the FBI file. He is not the character who we think he is. And I, I have written, I should send the article I wrote on it to you rather than going into it now because it's been a while. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it, in other words, he, he is not the um, – he's just not the character that, that we thought he was. And, 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 and I say that uh, he, the actual person would come out in a much more complimentary, complimentary fashion if you were to take all the stories about him and, and, and put them all together versus what – what I know now or what I've learned now versus what I initially heard about him. Um, so, so that's, uh, and I also wanted to ask you a question with regards to uh, Louis Farrakhan. Sure. Louis Farrakhan, uh, he, from what I know, he became involved in Scientology, first learned of it in 2006. Yeah. My book came out in 2005, which, and, and, and then in around 2011, he starts to advocate Scientology. Do you have any inside knowledge on how he became involved with Scientology? Well, I was going to ask you the same thing. Um, no, the, I mean, okay, I there is a character. Took, yeah, I know that they... Oh, there is a character, to, I don't remember his name, who's very active in Scientology, who, who introduced him to it, according to what I've read on the net. 
I just don't remember the man's name. He's an active Scientologist who introduced aspects of it to Louis Farrakhan. Okay. And, um, and then Louis Farrakhan began to publicly acknowledge Noble Dura Lee, which was very smart. Yeah. What, what I have noticed with Louis Farrakhan, of course, he's ripped to shreds uh, by people for his involvement in Scientology and stuff like this. And, uh, but the thing is, since he got into Scientology, what I noticed is he cut down on the anti-Jewish rhetoric. Mm-hmm. He cut down on it, although I think he might have recently did some, and he acknowledged Noble Drew Ali. Now, I publicly acknowledged him. Yeah. And to me, these were very smart things to do from a PR standpoint. Mm-hmm. In other words, you, you don't want to be riling the feathers of Jewish people. If you want to, you know, increase your, and it's a double-edged sword because, you know, if you look at, if you're looking at them as antagonists or somebody who've destroyed your, your culture, then you kind of have to, you, you can't sell out to, to your, your, your base, your political base. But, um, yeah, th- there is a character who got him involved in 2006 and probably had his ear and, did a number on him and 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 i saw i guess what i would say some more strategically conciliatory rhetoric coming out of him uh and oddly enough and i i would say if if the subject of scientology is ever to be resurrected and turned into something that could be useful on a wide basis it would come out of the moorish element and the moorish connection whether that's connection to the nation of islam or not it could be could not be because because people are in the nation of islam that um aren't necessarily they don't fit a stereotype they yeah. and they they might just be in there by title and and they might have much more to them than that that i've met them so and there's people that are followers of 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 that or original followers who don't ascribe to louis farrakhan so it the the connection is very interesting it puzzles the hell out of ex-scientologists it puzzles the hell out of them (laughs) it does not puzzle me although i don't know the ins and outs of him i do know that he quoted certain things from my book didn't give me credit when this million man march I was told that, and yeah. it, it does, of course, it doesn't offend me. I'm, I'm flattered that he would, you know. So I, you know, I don't know uh, what what that's all about. I was hoping you might have more information on that. Of course, we can dig down that rabbit hole if we want to. I don't know where it ends up. Well, the only thing that I could say is that, because I, I did attend the um, Million Man March uh, in uh, 2015, and there were. There was a considerable amount of Moors there wearing a fez, and he invited some to come out on stage and speak. Then I know he spoke about the Prophet Noble Drali at a um, Savior's Day. That's probably what you're speaking about um, a few years ago. As far as the connection with Scientology, I mean, the Nation of Islam is kind of secretive about that. I mean, they just speak on the auditing process. And from what I heard, the you know, from different people who've spoken on it, that's pretty much what they say. That's that's the only thing that they admit to, you know, co-opting or to, you know, 
using from Scientology. But yeah, I can't really offer any other insight because I don't I don't know. I can send you a link though where there's some um a brother from the Nation of Islam speaking on it. But yeah, I was gonna ask you the same thing. <laughs> But, um, well, the thing is, you know, the, the thing is, is I, I had to really uh, do a double take when I included the stuff in the Montauk Book of the Dead about the Moors. Mm-hmm. You know, because I wrote the book Synchronicity in the Seventh Seal. And that book, um, these things are available on skybooksusa.com. Synchronicity in the Seventh Seal was a book I wrote uh, to sort of exercise all the demons from all the research I'd done into time travel, the Montauk Indians, and it was, it was clearing, clearing the energy. And for whatever reason, I made a tribute to the Moors because they came up in my psyche. I didn't even know there was a Moorish science temple anymore. I didn't know it existed. I thought it was something in antiquity that died with Dhu Ali, and then it all turned into the nation of Islam. And then I... So when I wrote the book, Synchronicity in the Seventh Seal, I was contacted a man, by a man named Elias Bay, uh, who was in South Jersey, and I dedicated my book, Spandau Mystery, to him. He's passed away. He was the first more to contact me and say, oh, wow, I can't believe you wrote this book. This is right on. And he introduced me to Sid Catlett Bay, uh, who passed away recently. And Sid taught me so much. He, you know, his father was the famous drum drummer Sid Catlett Sr. Sid was a, was a basketball uh, player in the National Basketball Hall of Fame. He was the only he was the leading member of the only high school team to beat Kareem in basketball in yeah. high school. And he, he, he was a great guy and he taught me so much. And he's the one who brought me to uh, Chicago and Washington. But um, um, the so anyway, in that, so, so I met these Moors, and the Moors became a real part of my life. They used to come to my house. I used to have monthly meetings at my house, the Montauk night. And my, the best nights for me is when the Moors would come, uh, sometimes with their fezes, and they would be a part of the activity. And I just, those, those were the greatest times I had. And it was also the Moorish Science, a girl from the Moorish Science Temple who grew up in it uh, sort of, was the first one to tell me about the Qigong classes that I ended up going to. So the Moorish Science Temple was a gateway for me to, to meet my Qigong teacher, who was, who was black, and he was the most knowledgeable person in Qigong you're ever going to want to meet. I studied with him for 10 years before he passed away. Um, so Roosevelt Ganey, his name was. But um, the, uh, so the, the Moors have been an incredible experience for me. But I wrote that book, Seven Seal, and then my next book was to write the Montauk Book of the Dead. And in the, the latter part of it, I include all this stuff about Noble Drew Lee. And what the hell does this have to do with what I just talked about? Yeah. It, it, if, if somebody is not sort of tuned into my earlier books and just reads the Scientology part, they're going to like hit a, like, what the hell is this? Why is he talking about this? Yeah. However, it's tied to it. And, and this is why I'm very uh, almost, you know, I guess the word is flattered in a way that, that the nation of Islam would be making the Scientology connection. Because, what, look, whatever is not right with the nation of Islam, it's a human endeavor. Mm-hmm. They 
by default or otherwise could be the the one thing that could redeem Scientology as a useful thing because it can be very useful. It's it's taught uh, in a very knuckleheaded and abusive way. Uh, I, I know that because I was expert in doing it, and it's it's been given a very bad name. Um, but also, yeah. So so it's like I I, I if there's any hope for that. Uh, to, to, to reach a broad amount of people, it, it would be through the the Moorish connection, whether it's called, um, you know, NOI or, or anything else. So yeah. I, uh, I it's you. interesting. I, yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't I don't think like Tom Cruise is is really doing a good job as far as um you know giving Scientology a good name. But I, I hear what you're saying, and just from well, yeah, and when we talk about we talk about abuse. We talk about abuse. Scientology is a legacy of, of abuse. Now, uh, it's like certainly, you know, uh, well, this is the one, my my interaction, and because like all of almost over ninety percent of my fellow Qigong students were black, and in any of my interactions with the black community, is it people they're, they they have a a much more open energy field, but they also have a, a bigger bullshit detector. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, they have a bigger bullshit detector. So th- this is what I found. And, um, you know, so, so in other words, Scientology as an organization has gotten away with a lot of lot of I don't know if they've got well I guess they have gotten away with it there's just so much but what what is encouraging to me here is that because of where my research has taken me to Romania and to uh, other adventures and other avenues my Moorish connections have kind of like lost touch the Scientology connection to that whole element is is sort of like wow it's like it, it, it it roots me back to that and maybe we can look into this together and and sort of uh, see where all the dominoes line up. Because I, I never forget where I came from. I don't forget my old neighborhoods, which means I can't forget the Scientology neighborhood I lived in for 11, 12 years. And I can't can't forget the, the Moorish neighborhood that I lived in and grew up. So it's... Uh, you know, it's always good to come back home and, and to see see where this can take us. Um, Definitely. And, I mean, maybe that's why we're all here, you know, in this melting pot. I mean, like, even just with um, with the Dianetics and the thing with, um, I think you referred to it as a charge, where you're finding the energy, the entry points. The uh, your, your voice is getting muffled. Oh, I'm sorry. Can, can you hear me better now? Not much. A little, but not much. All right. Hang on a second. Okay. All right. Can you can you hear me now? I can hear you, but it sounds like you're speaking through a tin can. Oh man, not sure what's going on here. Um, hang on one second. Sorry about that. Okay. Are we any better now? Still the no, same? 
Still muffled. No, it's not. No, we got we we developed a bad connection. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry about that. There must be something going on with the yeah with my my internet connection because maybe maybe it means that we're hitting a hot topic, and I think yeah. we're about ready to wrap up anyway now. So <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe that's just a sign. But we've hit a hot topic, and it, it gives us a sort of a direction to pursue for the future, which is good. Definitely, that's great. And um, I just want to thank you for coming on. I uh, appreciate you. Thanks for writing your books. Thank you for sharing this information, which is pretty much obscure. I mean, there's this is this is a great thing. I'm, I'm glad you came on with us, and um, hopefully we can let, do let this me give, again in uh, the let future. Let me give uh, my websites. Uh, okay. For, for getting books, it's skybooksusa.com, skybooksusa.com, and also visit the timetraveleducationcenter.com, timetraveleducationcenter.com. Great. Great. So hopefully uh, we can do this again in the future, and I just want to thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks. You take care. Okay, you too. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.